Good morning. Trump's new indictment, unrest in Ecuador, black economic advances, 60 years after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has a dream, but there's still a long way to go. And Mayor Eric Adams says it's time to convert office space to housing in New York City. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for the week of August 18, 2023. First, these headlines. On Tuesday, Fulton County, Georgia, District Attorney Fannie Willis announced 41 criminal counts against former President Donald Trump and 18 other defendants for trying to overturn the 2020 election. The indictment brings felony charges against Donald John Trump, Rudolph William Lewis Giuliani. Every individual charged in the indictment is charged with one count of violating Georgia's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act through participation in a criminal enterprise in Fulton County, Georgia and elsewhere to accomplish the illegal goal of allowing Donald J. Trump to seize the presidential term of office beginning on January 20th, 21. They're charged with violating a law used to take down organized crime gangs, nicknamed RICO. The law takes aim at criminal enterprise, also known as racketeering. Former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, one of the defendants, rose to national prominence using racketeering laws against New York mobsters in the 1980s. Giuliani responded to the charges claiming prosecutors were the real criminals. Now, facing criminal indictments in several jurisdictions, including Manhattan and a federal court in Washington, D.C., Trump called the indictment a witch hunt and says he'll soon release a report showing that there was election fraud by Democrats in 2020 and that that report would exonerate him. Trump faces 13 felony charges in Atlanta. A key piece of evidence is a phone call on January 2, 2021, urging a Georgia official to find him the votes to win. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes. Four days later, on January 6th, Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol in an unsuccessful attempt to stop lawmakers from certifying Biden's victory. They were heard chanting, hang Mike Pence, enraged by the former vice president's refusal to overturn the election. Pence, a candidate for the GOP nomination, said it was a matter of morality. I really do believe that uh, anyone who puts themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. And anyone who asks someone else to put themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States again. Former Vice President Mike Pence. Meanwhile, outside the courthouse, protesters from the Atlanta-based movement to stop a facility known as Cop City, that's a proposed police training area in Atlanta, denounced both major parties. Protesters also took note of a police killing in an Atlanta suburb on Tuesday. This is our future that is on the line here, and if we can't get justice in the courts, we will demand it in the streets. On June 23rd, anti-cop city protesters were charged by the Georgia Attorney General with domestic terrorism after protests turned violent. Georgia's Attorney General is a Republican. In that case, county DAs, who are mostly Democrat, removed their support, accusing GOP Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican, of unfair prosecution. D.A. Willis says she expects the election tampering trial to begin in about six months.
In world news, Poland held a massive military parade on Tuesday showcasing high-tech weapon systems and tanks as war rages in neighboring Ukraine. Flag-waving crowds gathered in scorching heat to see U.S.-made Abrams tanks, HIMARS mobile artillery and Patriot missiles, as well as F-16 fighter jets and Korean and Polish-made equipment. Critics say Poland can't afford the huge loans necessary to fund its massive military buildup, but Polish President Andrzej Duda promised to sustain a defense budget equal to 4% of his country's gross national product. Duda says Poland cannot afford to stand idle as Russia's war in Ukraine unfolds. Tuesday was the anniversary of the 1920 Battle of Warsaw, when Polish troops defeated Russian communist forces. And in the Western Hemisphere, United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres urged a multinational force to combat gangs in Haiti. Guterres called for coercive law enforcement measures to target the heavily armed gangs. He welcomed an offer by Kenya to lead the force and was pledged support by the Bahamas and Jamaica. Guterres says gangs have encircled the capital of Port-au-Prince in Haiti and have cut roads to the nation's interior. Closer to home, in the Lower East Side neighborhood called the East Village, a man described as incoherent jumped from the roof of a building on East 4th Street Tuesday. According to police, the man survived the fall. His condition is not known. His name has not been released. Hawaii's Governor Josh Green said on Wednesday he will protect local landowners from being victimized by opportunistic speculators in the aftermath of the deadly wildfire. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell said at least 40 teams of cadaver-sniffing dogs have been sent to Lahaina, Maui in search of remains. This is a really hard disaster, and this is a really difficult search operation. Now, I want to be honest with everyone. This is also going to be a very long and hard recovery. But our federal, state, and local partners are working around the clock to help all of those who have been impacted by this disaster. The death toll rose to 111 by midweek. Hawaii's Emergency Management Agency's director defended not using warning sirens, but on Thursday he resigned, despite claiming the sirens may have prompted residents to head inland into the mouth of the fire. In world news, Japan is preparing a massive release of contaminated water from the ruined Fukushima nuclear power station. The water is expected to be cleaned of many radioactive isotopes released by the explosion and meltdown of three of the station's six nuclear plants, owned by TEPCO, the Tokyo Power and Light Company. But the water is still heavily contaminated with a radioactive form called tritium. The release was approved by the International Atomic Energy Association a couple of months ago, but is still highly unpopular in the region. The release was delayed to come after a summit at Camp David, Maryland today, Friday, August 18th, hosted by President Joe Biden with the leaders of South Korea and Japan. Old enemies, the U.S. is courting for its alliance against North Korea and China. Investigative reporter Tim Shorrock grew up in Japan and South Korea. He says a triple alliance will add another 70 years to the confrontation. This whole agreement, this whole alliance was predicated on an agreement between South Korea and Japan about Japan's wartime crimes uh, in early spring. And the agreement that emerged out of there completely let Japan off the hook. South Korea is having to pay for all the damages that happened during that time. And this was really unpopular in South Korea. But, you know, it's praised by the Biden administration. It's a great act of diplomacy.
you know, this is not an, it's not a relationship of equals. It's uh, what they're saying about it is largely untrue. Uh, and that's what's wrong with it. I think it's dangerous for the, I think it's dangerous for the region. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, look, you got, you know, uh, the largest military power in the world, the United States, uh, Japan, both South Korea and Japan have enormous militaries. Despite what you hear about Japan, it's been remilitarizing over over the last 20 years under its very conservative government. This has not happened overnight. Uh, in terms of what they're what the government's telling us is that you know this is just a re- response to the rise of China and fears about China, and it's a response to uh, North Korea uh, and North North Korea's actions. It's nuclear and and uh, uh, missile program, but in fact, you know, the United States has been trying to link up South Korea and Japan for decades, decades, and uh, they they finally have the opportunity with, you know, very the, the governments they have in Tokyo and Seoul. Mm-hmm. Is, is this part of trying to put a military ring of steel around China by the United States? Well, basically, and you know, the, the United States has had has had that ring of steel around China since the Korean War. It's, it's sort of a forgotten aspect of this that you know, along with the Korean War came the growth of the U.S. military-industrial complex. I mean, the Korean War quadrupled U.S. defense spending, military spending, and the U.S. built a huge network of bases. From the northern part of Japan through southern Japan, Okinawa, the islands of Okinawa, into South Korea, augmented by U.S. bases on Guam and other Pacific islands, they're all aimed at containing China and also as a military platform for another war with if there's another war in Korea. It's a continuation of a very militaristic policy since the Korean War. Why does the United States have this uh, obsession with this small nation, North Korea? Basically, to stop communism from taking over all of Korea is why they divided it in the first place. In that period of time, the government in North Korea has, over the last 20 years, has developed a fairly large nuclear arsenal for a small country, and they have very, very sophisticated missiles now. All of this could have been resolved in the past if certain agreements had held up. Bill Clinton had an agreement with North Korea that stopped its nuclear program for almost 10 years. Bush, too, destroyed that, putting North Korea on the axis of evil and then accelerating military buildup in South Korea. It's been going on for a long time. Well, some people in the United States can't seem to let it let you know things go, whether it's in Iran or in South Korea, in North Korea? They basically want North Korea to disappear. That's the U.S. policy. They do not, now it's all around prevent them from having nuclear weapons. Well, they do now. The safest approach for the United States to take in a situation like this is to defuse the situation. Okay, what are your concerns, North Korea? And here's ours. Let's resolve it through negotiation. That does not appear to be on the cards for Biden and Blinken and these, his administration. You know, wasn't for his, the previous Democratic administration either, Obama. What do you think they'll be discussing at tomorrow's meeting at Camp David, a Friday's meeting in Camp David? 
They're going to expand the military cooperation by having sort of a trilateral agreement, by having three-way military ties. The way it works out is that you have joint naval forces, joint air forces, you know, working together seamlessly, as they like to say. That's what they'll be discussing is how to accelerate their military cooperation. Here you have Japan, the country that colonized Korea, in this alliance with the southern part of Korea. If there's a war or there's a military confrontation, that can involve Japan. And to many Koreans, it's got to be looked at from their perspective. To many Koreans, that's a frightening idea. As frightening, as scary as North Korea having nuclear weapons. Biden is playing with fire here. Investigative reporter Tim Sherrock last month marked 70 years since the armistice that ended combat in the Korean War. On the other side of the globe, Ecuador continued in the grip of political violence this week. The fatal shooting of a local leader who represented the political party of former President Rafael Correa brought the toll of political assassinations in the South American country to three. Last week, an anti-corruption candidate for president was shot dead in a brazen broad daylight attack in the capital of Quito. Last month, the mayor of Ecuador's third largest city was killed. He had recently been re-elected to the post. A senior research associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research is Jake Johnstone. He says elections were called by the current pro-business president of Ecuador to avoid charges of corruption. There are snap elections uh, on Sunday in Ecuador, and that stems from a decision made by President Guillermo Lasso, who was facing an impeachment trial earlier this year and utilized a never-before aspect of the Constitution to dissolve the legislature Uh, And that calls for the snap elections, which are now scheduled to take place on Sunday. Why did he do this, do you think? It was pretty clear at the time things were not looking great in the impeachment trial. This was a way to sort of stop that process and allow him to at least maintain his presidency and continue to govern in the interim period here. What type of leader is he considered? Guillermo Lasso is probably best known as the director of a large bank. And that is his sort of background. Certainly he is governed largely um, you know, as a sort of neoliberal in terms of his economic policy from the right. There's unrest in the streets of Ecuador today? What we're seeing here is a, a confluence of a number of things, but there's certainly been a tremendous increase in violence in, in Ecuador over recent years and some shocking political violence, obviously, in, in recent weeks, including the assassination of the mayor of one of Ecuador's largest cities, presidential candidate Fernando de la Vicencio, and other political leaders as well. That stems from a number of things, I mean, certainly institutional reforms and then security failures on the part of the state, but also the increasing presence of narco-trafficking organizations in the country. What happened? How did that occur? The assassination took place right after a campaign rally, and he received three shots to the head as he entered the vehicle. There were a number of really suspicious things around what took place. I mean, for one, the car that he was entering, you know, he has a, a robust security detail, but that day there was no armored vehicle, no bulletproof vehicle. They exited the main entrance of the building, whereas other candidates who were at the rally exited through the side entrance. And there were no police or security presence on the far side of the car, which is where the fatal shots were fired from. These are some of the reasons why both family members of the slain candidate as well as others have raised the possibility of state involvement in the assassination. Why would they want to take him out? 
He was one of the most outspoken individuals, both in the presidency, but also previously in his work as an investigative journalist, denouncing high-level corruption, including between government officials and police and security forces with narco-trafficking and other criminal organizations. The day before his assassination, one of his final interviews pointed the finger at at high-level corruption and complicity with criminal organizations and state actors and promised to purge the police if he was elected president. So he certainly was well aware that he was coming under threats. Everyone was well aware of that fact, and that's one of the reasons why he, he had such a robust security detail. Last day or two, another assassination? Yeah, it was assassination of political leader of the Ciudadana, the party of, of former President Rafael Correa, was assassinated in the city of Esmeraldas. There have been a number of political assassinations, and these, for the most part, took place along the coast of Ecuador, the Pacific coast of Ecuador, which has become this key transshipment point for cocaine. I think one of the most shocking things about the assassination of Villa Vicencio was that it took place in downtown Quito, right? This is really the first time such such a violent act has taken place there. It caused quite some shock among the population. Now, does the United States uh, have anything to do with this? Well, what the Ecuadorian government has done is, is they requested the support of the FBI in terms of this assassination investigation itself. And I think when you go back to look at, at sort of the U.S. involvement in Ecuador, now the United States has seen Lasso as a extremely important ally in a region that is increasingly governed by left governments. Lasso was sort of an exception, and that made him tremendously important to the United States and to members of Congress and other policymakers. So we've seen really high-level engagement with the Lasso administration, even as evidence accumulated over high-level corruption and association with these criminal organizations. In fact, just uh, last April, a number of members of Congress wrote to the Biden administration urging the United States to reconsider its relationship with the Lasso government, given some of these really worrying connections. When is the election happening, and uh, what do you expect to come of it? This Sunday, August 20th. We haven't seen many polls or much indications of how the assassination has impacted the race, but certainly insecurity has been a key issue. I think the expectation is that it is likely to go to a second round, uh, which will be held in another couple of months. And so it's unlikely that this is going to go away anytime soon. Jake Johnstone is Senior Research Associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Thousands of people have been killed over the past three years in Ecuador as the country has been transformed into a major drug trafficking hub. And in the United States, in more national news, a Texas woman was arrested and has been charged with threatening to kill the federal judge in the federal case against former President Donald Trump. Abigail Joe Shry of Alvin, Texas, called the federal courthouse in Washington and left the threatening message using a racist term for the U.S. District Judge. Documents say Shry told Judge Tanya Chutkin, who is overseeing the election conspiracy case against Trump, you are in our sights. We want to kill you. Threats against judges, prosecutors, and grand jurors in the four cases against Trump have become a hallmark of the prosecution, with several violent attacks, including a brutal attack on the husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The cases against the former president are unprecedented. The only president or former president ever arrested was Ulysses S. Grant for speeding on a Washington street in a horse-drawn carriage. Now, former President Trump faces dozens of criminal charges in four jurisdictions. We turn to news legal expert, retired Judge Bill Blum, who has authored an article on Trump's legal problems for truthdig.com, Trump on Trial. Well, he's in a world of legal trouble. He's now been indicted four times, two in state court, New York and Georgia, 
once in federal district court in Washington, D.C., and once in Florida in federal district court. And he's going to be looking at four different trials, which are going to get underway in terms of discovery, which is the preliminary sharing of information and the filing of motions and all of those proceedings very shortly. In fact, much of that is already underway. He has two trial dates set in New York and Florida. Both of them, I believe, are tentative. Uh, I think the um, Jack Smith case in Washington, D.C. might very well be the first to go forward to trial. So he's going to be a very busy boy. His legal expenses are unthinkable, largely being paid for by his supporters. I don't know that he's putting out any money yet from his own funds. And we are now, as I've written in the Truth Dig piece, in uncharted waters for our country. What makes this a constitutional crisis? Legal scholars debate, what is a constitutional crisis? A constitutional crisis occurs when differences between prime political actors in the country can't be resolved peacefully within the framework of the Constitution. You can debate whether or not we are in a a constitutional crisis at the beginning of the constitutional crisis or looking at one, but we certainly are at least on the precipice of one because the entire Republican Party has been captured by Donald Trump and the MAGA movement, and this is an illiberal political movement, which means that it doesn't believe in democracy. It believes in power. It believes in the power of a leader. Some people, including me, call it a new form, a unique form of American-style fascism. Pitted against that, on the other side, is what remains of American democracy, the broader mass of American people who still believe that the person who receives the most votes in an election should win. And these two groups don't seem to have much, if any, common ground. There are these four lawsuits which attempt to bring Donald Trump to justice under what we call the rule of law, which essentially says that under the law, everyone should be treated equally. And we aspire to that principle, often violating it in practice. But with Donald Trump, that's exactly what these four indictments seek to do. And we don't know how all this is going to play out. Donald Trump is going to move to trial. We don't know how those trials are going to turn out. And Donald Trump is using his presidential campaign to essentially quash the proceedings through a combination of mobilizing his supporters behind the big lie of 2020, behind the big lie that these are political persecutions, in the hope that he can get reelected and then dismiss the federal prosecutions and petition the Supreme Court to intervene and stay the state prosecutions under a concept of federalism in which the federal government is supreme and the Supreme Court might just maybe say that We have to protect a sitting president against the distractions of an ongoing criminal trial in state courts. 
So we are really in a tough spot as a nation, especially one that thinks of itself as a democracy. Is it possible that Trump could be acquitted on these charges? Of course it's possible. Although the indictments seem like they're very, very strong, you can always have stealth jurors on a case, rogue jurors on a case. And this could particularly occur in Florida, where Trump is very popular, even though that Mar-a-Lago documents case is quite strong. You have a trial that's going to be presided over by District Court Judge Eileen Cannon, who's very inexperienced, who's already shown a bias in favor of the former president. And it could be that um, the prosecution, no matter how well they do in presenting their case, won't convince all 12 jurors beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump is guilty. Remember, he has the presumption of innocence. And the prosecution has the heavy burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's possible that Trump could be acquitted. But I think that what his strategy is, is to postpone and delay these trials through a variety of maneuvers, including running for president and saying that he's too busy to stand trial so that he gets reelected and then he can move to uh, have the prosecution's stopped, fire the special counsel, and halt the state uh, proceedings as well. Too busy for a criminal trial. I've covered many criminal trials, and I've never heard that one work. I know. I know. This is why we are in such a unique situation. I do think that the judge in Washington, D.C., Judge Chukin, has uh, put it correctly, that the more Donald Trump misbehaves and violates all of the pretrial protective orders and threatens witnesses and judges either directly or thinly by saying that she's just going to accelerate the trial date because that protects the jury pool, that protects the integrity of the proceeding. And don't forget, it's the defendant constitutionally who has the right to a speedy trial. Donald Trump has waived that right. He doesn't want a speedy trial. So now things are really in the hands of the judge, of all the judges, in terms of scheduling. And the judges do want to be fair. They want to give Donald Trump his legal due process. But at the same time, they have to protect the integrity of the process. So if Trump is out there threatening witnesses and polluting the jury pool with disinformation, the job of the judge will be to move the trial along. It may also be the job of each judge to impose some kind of sanction on Donald Trump, which would really create a circus atmosphere. And I think they want to avoid that. But it's possible. Your reading of the list of co-defendants in the uh, Atlanta case, when you read those names, Giuliani, Eason, Meadows, Cheeseboro, Clark, several of these we've had conversations over the years about their roles in all of this. When you look at this, what does it tell you from based on all the things that have happened prior to this? Well, it tells me that there was a conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 election and ultimately to stop, impede, or obstruct the January 6th joint session of Congress 
which is constitutionally required to confirm the uh, election of the next president. And those kinds of conspiracies and that kind of fraud are not protected by the First Amendment. So what you're hearing on the news, on cable news from Trump and his lawyers about how this is a persecution and violates his First Amendment rights, no, that's not true. First Amendment does not apply to criminal conspiracies or to fraud. If it did, any fraudster who's in jail should be filing a habeas corpus petition immediately, walking out into the sunlight as a free man tomorrow. News legal expert, retired Judge Bill Blum, author of an article on Trump's legal problems for truthdig.com, Trump on trial. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. It was 60 years ago, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, August 28, 1963, that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech to a quarter million people who lined the mall in Washington, D.C. Freedom and justice, I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with, with this faith. As King said to the throng, a fifth of whom were white, a century after the end of slavery, the colored American lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. While the next six decades some progress for black Americans would be made, a recently published report, Still a Dream, over 500 years to black economic equality, claims King's dream is still a long way off. Co-author Diedrich Asante Mohammed says millions of African Americans are still blocked from making economic progress, despite some gains since 1963. You know, the time of the March on Washington, 1963, African Americans had a poverty rate of 51%, which is, you know, I think remarkably high. I think that over half the population was living in income poverty, and 15% of whites were living in poverty. Uh, and by 2021, we've seen ongoing decline to about 20% poverty for African-Americans, which is still high, which is still one out of five, but it's still remarkably different than 51% of African-Americans and the decline for uh, white poverty as well to 8%. So we have seen uh, some important changes economically for African-Americans. And we also see some strengthening in terms of education, high school attainment and college graduation, and even a bridging of educational inequality between blacks and whites in college attainment, though there still is a distinct difference. Let's talk about the bad news because there's a stubborn uh, resistance in some areas of the economics and wealth. Overall, in terms of wealth, we have seen very little 
uh, bridging of inequality. We saw that uh, African Americans had about 58 cents of every dollar of income of whites and uh, 62 cents of every dollar of income of whites in 2021. So in income, there was a, a slow bridging, but at that rate, it would take uh, 513 years for blacks to reach just income parity with white households. And then wealth was uh, much worse. African-Americans in 1962 had about 12 cents of every dollar of wealth of whites, and in 2019 had 18 cents. And so at that rate, it would take almost 800 years for blacks to have equal wealth with whites. 60 years after the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, that uh, economically we're not really on a path to uh, bridging this racial economic inequality we've been dealing with for generations. Why is it that you have educational attainment, you have employment attainment, yet such a slow bridging of the gap? What's your family's worth? Wealth is probably the greatest indicator of economic sustainability and opportunity. It is something that usually takes uh, generations to build upon. We have seen the country has yet to make the deep investment into racial economic inequality that would really strengthen and, and quickly move forward this bridging of the racial wealth divide. And if you don't bridge the racial wealth divide, you're really not bridging a racial economic inequality. Dr. King was quite clear. He was talking about the fierce urgency of now in his 1963 speech. And then by 1966-1967, they had the Freedom Budget, which was highlighting the need to invest billions of dollars in order to actually bridge this racial economic inequality. And I think that's where the country never took that next step. We had the war on poverty, which really helped bring the poverty rates down, but we didn't do that type of massive investment that would create a black, strong, middle-class by wealth similar to what was done to white America in the 19, say, 40s, 50s, uh, even 30s. Home ownership. That's correct. Home ownership for most Americans is the number one source of wealth, and we still have pretty much the same home ownership divide as we did 60 years ago. And I've had some of my researchers say even a hundred years ago, with African Americans only having a home ownership rate uh, still below. 50%, while white Americans have home ownership rate around 73, 74%. Redlining is still strong. Even when blacks are homeowners, the value of the home is worth less on the market. Redlined communities in the 30s and 40s are still disproportionately people of color, still disproportionately low income. For the young people, 30 and under, we've seen tremendous changes, but the rest of America, the older Americans, still are so stubborn when it comes to changes. It does go beyond color prejudice or personal prejudice. I do think one of the great challenges is who wants to integrate into a community that is underserved and lacks resources. That's the challenge, right? You had the redlining areas that are predominantly black still having not just that there are lower income people there, but they're oftentimes not the same type of strong public resources or community resources in those neighborhoods. It's really going to require that the country invest seriously in low-income communities of color that provides vital infrastructure, public services, something that would make middle-income and higher-income people feel like, oh, this is a community I want to be a part of. And I think that's the primary problem, is, is, is a lack of will to do the type of investment needed in these lower-income communities. Bad neighborhood is still a euphemism for an African-American or a Latino neighborhood. That's right, and a bad neighborhood is really about a lack of a neighborhood that has not been invested in.
too often times people think, well, let's just push out the poor people, also meaning the black and Latino people. No, let's keep a lot of them there. Let's really invest resources in those communities so they can be strong communities as well. Diedrich Asante Mohammed is co-author of Still a Dream, Over 500 Years to Black Economic Equality, published by the Institute for Policy Studies. The report says black home ownership is increasing, but at a rate much slower than for white America. In local news, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream remains a dream for tens of thousands in New York City who are living in shelters to the unhoused or on the streets. Home ownership, the path to wealth for millions of Americans, has been all but denied to many black people in a city with the highest housing costs in the nation. Since COVID-19 swept the city, killing more than 45,000 with blacks dying at a rate double whites, many workers who left the city to work from home never returned, leaving gleaming office towers up to 95% vacant. On Wednesday, Mayor Eric Adams outlined a plan to rezone commercial areas of the city to convert empty offices into 20,000 new homes. The state legislature had failed to take action on rezoning in 2023, leaving the city to act alone. If it stalls, the economy in this state will stall, and we are the economic engine for this country as well. So all three of these initiatives, office conversion, the accelerator, and Midtown South, are the results of looking at the big picture, something that historically we were not doing. We're all in this together. Housing New York is a five-borough plan and is a plan that we can do together. They are the results of accepting our new reality. COVID taught us something, if we want to acknowledge it or not. We are in a different norm. Everything has changed, and we have to be willing to change with it, and that's including our zoning. We can't look back and govern the city the way things were, we must govern the city the way they are. And it's possible to do so. Moving into the future, unafraid, bold, visionaries, and make sure that we can accomplish the task of housing as we look at the redevelopment of our community. The mayor's plan would convert more than 160 million square feet into housing. It would involve accelerating development of Midtown below 42nd Street and providing tax breaks. And that's the news for the week of August 18, 2023. The news was produced by this reporter from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.